You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. How many times do we need to hear you're too young for bowel cancer before we start to take early onset bowel cancer seriously? The statistics are alarming. One in nine people diagnosed with Australia's second deadliest cancer will be under the age of 50. This statistic is rising and yet we don't really know why. The age bias is real with many GPs overlooking the disease based on age and not symptoms or family history. Being diagnosed with early onset bowel cancer often has big impacts not only on the patient but loved ones, family members and carers. Mid-October is International Carers Week. On this episode of the Bottom Line podcast, we are joined by bowel cancer patient and advocate Nina alongside her husband Aaron. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, Steph. Thanks, Steph. Nina, let's chat to you first. You were diagnosed a few years ago with stage three bowel cancer at just 42. It's reoccurred a few years later, but let's talk around your initial diagnosis. Yeah, so 2020 was a pretty shocking year for lots of people, and everyone's got their own perspective on that um, particular year. But for me, I was in the midst of raising three children with Aaron. I was working part-time as a nurse at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide and um, and the world had changed overnight, it felt like, um, and I suddenly stepped up into full-time work as a lot of healthcare workers did. Thankfully, it didn't delay my diagnosis too much at that point, but there'd probably been a two-year lead up. Um, and I've only really learned that with the information that I've learned since being diagnosed. So I had been low in iron for a couple of years prior to diagnosis. So probably somewhere around 2018, I really started feeling quite fatigued and my blood tests showed that I had low iron. So I trotted off to the GP at some point and had started having a chat to them. And of course, being a menstruating person, being a busy mum, being a shift worker, and at the time being a vegetarian, they were fairly easy things to explain away the low iron. So we went down the usual process of having an iron infusion and and I felt so much better after that. And we all thought, right, well, that's, that's it. Um, problem solved. And hopefully in time, as the kids grow up and life gets easier, it'll all just disappear. But unfortunately, it didn't. And by the time we got to early 2020, I had started having more tummy aches, um, you know, real changes in my um, bowel habits. So, uh, but again, the shift work really wreaks havoc on your bowels. So that was also easy to explain away. And my final symptom was that I did see blood in the toilet when I used my bowels and that was really frightening. And I think in hindsight, I had seen bits and pieces here and there, but again, you're just busy um, and you you just think, oh, it's probably hemorrhoids. It's probably just going to disappear on its own. Um, or you second guess yourself and think, did I see it or didn't I? And you would have been by that, you know, in those early stages, you were still, you were about 40, is that right? Yeah. And then I was 42 in 2020 and I did go to the GP again and say, look, yeah, I'm still not feeling right. I've now got this blood that I've seen. 
And the GP was very quick to act at that point and sent me straight off rapid referral to a gastroenterologist. And this is where I guess um, I feel thankful to have had private health that did get things moving more quickly. And I know that's a privilege and it's a huge issue in terms of um, delayed diagnosis and treatment. So I did go to the gastroenterologist and did um, get in for a colonoscopy quite quickly, despite the fact that COVID was really having a huge effect on elective waiting lists. And so I, uh, April 20, 2020, uh, I woke up after my colonoscopy and was told that there was a big tumour in my bowel and it needed to go for further testing, but the likelihood was that it was cancer. In fact, he he said almost with 99% certainty, you have bowel cancer. And I was wheeled straight round for staging in the CT department that day, actually. How did you feel when you were delivered that news? Is it Were you shocked or did you have an inkling? Uh, look, I guess the blood, you know, made me feel quite concerned. I still hadn't put all those symptoms together and I guess as a patient you shouldn't have to even if you do have a healthcare background but I've got to admit going into it Aaron sort of said to me oh I hope we don't have to go home and eat that horrible cardboard bread you know he was thinking of gluten-free diets and all this (laughs) thinking it would be some kind of dietary adjustment perhaps an inflammatory bowel disease of some sort which obviously is still very serious but Maybe a part of me thought maybe it could be, but I certainly didn't dwell on that. And so it was still a huge shock when we woke up to that information. Erin, at this point, how did you feel as a carer and a loved one? And we often, and rightly so, the patient is at the centre, but we mustn't forget about the carers and the loved ones. How did you feel when you heard that diagnosis? It was a total shock to me. I think we'd spoken a little bit about Nina's health concerns on the lead up to the colonoscopy, but not a whole lot about it. And I remember taking her in that day and then I think it was school holidays and I'd gone to the playground with the kids afterwards and I thought, oh, we'll head home and I'll get a call and I'll say, right, you can come pick her up. And and I did get a call once I was back home and they basically said, Nina's out of her colonoscopy now. Uh, you can come in. The doctor's asked they can leave the kids at home. So come in by yourself. And as soon as I heard that, I went, it's going to be heavy. I think I've record land speed records <laughs> into the hospital. Matthew uh, Fleur driving in there. And I got in there and I remember just walking in. Um, and Nina was in like a recovery room with some other patients and they pulled the curtain around. And the doctor came in and said, I've got good news and bad news. But she'd had an endoscopy as well. And he said, the good news is yeah, the top end's clear. The, the bad news is that I'm certain she's got cancer. And it was a total shock. And then about five seconds later, they wheeled her out for scanning. And I was left in this little cubicle with a curtain pulled around me and uh, and it was a real shock. And the, the nurse was great. They were coming in and checking on me. But it was just, I was a total shock. I just thought we'd be eating some more leafy greens and that was about it. So totally off the radar. We often talk about it, don't we? Um, and, Nina, you touched on that. You said just because you've got a healthcare background <laughs> doesn't mean that you know everything about everything. And I think also there's a quite a bit of um, pressure on the nurses to then be able to support carers in that moment as well. It's an area I think we need to get better at. So you, you mentioned that you had, you've got three children and I know having had a child myself and he was relatively young, you know, the impact on them is 
largest world. How did your diagnosis impact them? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. It's they were all in primary school, and um, I guess at the time we're a fairly honest and open family, but I was also conscious of not giving them more information than they wanted or needed. They weren't so young that we would hide things from them. They were certainly, you know, they knew that I had appointments. They knew that I was having surgery and and eventually, obviously, they knew that I um, was having chemotherapy and it's really hard to hide from, from kids of that age. But at the same time, and our other close family members, so Aaron's mum, had been um, going through cancer treatment for several years and she was a really positive example of continuing to just get up, live your life and had a great outlook on things. So we used Nanny as a bit of an example of how, you know, mum has to have some surgery too, mum has to have some treatment too. There'll be days when we all feel really yucky about it and then there'll be other days where it's okay and we left it at that and, and they all wanted school to be their place that was cancer-free. Some normality. <laughs> yeah, some normality and a place where you can just compartmentalise and have have a normal life. And I think we all want that. I mean, I want that and I'm sure Aaron wants that. You want cancer-free days where you're not doing appointments, you're not thinking about it, you're not talking about it, you're just completely absorbed in something else. And so it was really nice for them to have that support from school. Their teachers were aware uh, so that they could be a good backup for them. But ultimately that was their place that they could just be normal. Yes, and um, I, I think that's uh, really good advice. It's about being age-appropriate as well, and everyone's unique. Some people don't want to discuss it with their children, and um, that's okay too. But it is delivering age-appropriate information to them as and when they need it. In terms of we talk about age bias and I mentioned that in the opening and you know Nina you came to Canberra with us and it was part of part of the discussion around early onset and GPs often dismiss some of those symptoms what was your GP experience? I've got a fantastic GP I still go to the same GP um, as my primary GP and a couple of others in the same practice if I can't see that person and I really don't think it's necessarily an individual issue. I think it's a system issue. And I think for a lot of GPs, it's about knowing how to pick the needle from the haystack. Because let's face it, the majority of people, it is going to be something other than bowel cancer. And that's fantastic. But I guess they need to know who are they pushing forward to the gastroenterologists? Who are they putting forward that sense of urgency and having a pathway that they can follow that's evidence-based because it is incredibly difficult to pick out from all those different health issues that could be the cause, who are we pushing forward to a gynaecologist, who will be pushing forward to a gastroenterologist. And I think that's where GPs need more support because I think also, I guess I've heard lots and lots of stories about youngish women, potentially in childbearing years, certainly in menstruating years, going for iron infusions and, and feeling so much better and really talking to each other about how good that's made them feel. But one of the things I just always point out is that is great and it does make you feel a lot better, but you you need to make sure that you're being fully investigated. What's the underlying cause? 
and just push a little bit further. And I think going to Canberra and meeting some of the health professionals who were there and hearing that no blood in your poo is normal. Now, it may just mean it's hemorrhoids, but you won't know until you've had a colonoscopy and you actually can't know with 100% confidence and you feel like it's overkill. You, you actually tell yourself that you don't need it as well. It's not just the GPs. It's a difficult issue because I think it's multifactorial. Absolutely. And be, and feeling empowered that you can ask that. And the best case scenario is that it is nothing and it is hemorrhoids or it's a small polyp that can be taken out because you don't want to be in the situation that yourself and I are in, were in and are in. How has your relationship changed since Nina's diagnosis? And I might ask you that question first, Aaron, as a carer. Look, I think... Uh, it certainly brought us closer together over the last few years. Uh, we've spent so much more time together. I've tried to support Nina through uh, all the uh, initial appointments with the specialists, tried to sneak myself into some of the chemo treatments when it was uh, COVID times and rough to leave on the, the first occasion. Uh, but just being there really for a, for a support um, side by side. Um, and we've been fortunate, I guess, with our employers that we've had been able to have you know, significant leave to be able to get through those, those tough times. And for you, Nina? I think the other thing is you are so busy, particularly, I guess, I feel like our scenario, which is a fairly common scenario, is you are, um, for the younger people, you're in the thick of your life, whether that means child rearing, whether that means career, whatever that means for you, you really are in the thick of it. So most people are really just surviving day to day. The weeks tick over and sometimes you lose sight of the big picture. So for us, uh, it's made a stop and reassess the things that are really important and make sure that we prioritise those in the midst of everything else. And that might be anything from making sure that we don't just get up and do jobs on a Saturday morning. We actually go down the beach, have a walk, have a coffee, take the dog and then go do the jobs. Or it might mean something as exciting as we were really lucky to go overseas last year and we took the kids to Europe. So that was a huge, you know, big bucket list adventure that was a once in a lifetime and that was so wonderful. But it could be anything from a cup of tea together to a walk to a date night, whatever it is that makes you just stop and think what's important. And Nina, from your perspective, how has Aaron helping you, helped you and supported you through your diagnosis? Yeah, look, I've thought about this a lot and I often wonder how people who are on their own do it. I really, I guess you work with what you've got, but certainly for us, some things are for me and some things are, you know, literally being cooked food that I feel like, you know, you've got a hankering for something because through, you know, everything that you tinker with your bowel, it, it um, changes your taste buds. And so you might have a hankering for certain things and Aaron's always at the ready, you know, to make whatever I feel like or go to the shops and get whatever I feel like. Or it could be even things like leaving the kids and, and being apart from them, whether it's for a day in the chemo suite and then the subsequent days of not feeling present because you feel so rotten, or whether it be a week in hospital, you know, after surgery, just knowing that he's there, keeping their normality, keeping their routine going, running them backwards and forwards, making sure they don't miss out on parties, playdates, sports, school activities. That is really, it puts my mind at ease, not to mention looking after my favourite child, the dog. 
making sure that he gets the attention that he wants as well. You recently did an interview for the news and uh, the dog got more airtime than Aaron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're not gonna, that's not going to happen today. No, not today, not today. No, look, I think it is just um, really picking up the pieces. And I. it's really hard because with or without illness, we expect our spouse or our partner sometimes to be everything. And, um, and I think, you know, it doesn't have to be the case. We outsource a lot of things. I outsource my psychology. You know, I go, I chat, I vent, I leave my darkest thoughts there and then we get on with it. They can't be expected to be everything. But um, where his strengths lie is just keeping the mood, keeping the kids going, keeping the food going. And that's, you know, nothing to be sneezed at. It's a huge, huge thing. We say when we do our marriage vows, don't you, you know, the good, the bad, <laughs> and you don't actually believe it at the time. It is it is massive. I really take my hat off to people who have to walk the path alone because even with the best of friends, even with a great support network, at the end of the day, when the sun has set, it's the person sitting on the couch watching crappy reality TV <laughs> who really makes the difference to how you feel you can go on, you can keep going and keep going back for more of things that are really challenging. No, 100%. And um, it's so lovely to have you join us, Aaron, because I think it just it shows that importance of having a carer with you. Now, Nina, we touched on this before. You've had a recurrence and the last few months have been quite harrowing for yourself and for your family. Can you talk us through your latest surgery? Yeah, so I was, I guess I think of myself as fortunate because not everyone gets the opportunity once. But for me, I've had the opportunity twice to have a fairly major abdominal surgery where they try and take out any tumour that they can see. So my spread has been through my through my belly, through the organs in my belly. So they call it peritoneal cancer, peritoneal metastases. And um, there's a surgery that um, is offered to some people if they're a good candidate where they um, take out what they can see, do any repairs, and then potentially put chemotherapy in at the time as well. So they they bathe all of your internal organs to try and mop up the cells. So I had that surgery, um, it's called a HIPEC. I had that surgery in 2021 and then had another six months of chemotherapy after that during 2022. And unfortunately, it, it chose to rear its head again. And um, this time... They couldn't quite get everything, so the chemotherapy at the end of the procedure didn't go ahead. But um, I did come out with a new friend, so I've got a new bag, Messi, Messi the bag, the colostomy bag. So that's oh, you've named it. I finally named it. I finally named it. <laughs> and um, so she's been a godsend because she actually has meant that I had could have the tumours removed that were around the lower part of my bowel. And so for now, I don't go to the toilet. I go. I have a bag on my stomach instead and um, it's going really well, but it has been a learning curve. There are a few other little glitches, but they're starting to resolve. I'm a few weeks post-op now and feeling reasonably good and preparing to go back into chemotherapy, regular chemotherapy in a, in a couple of weeks. I think at some point in the last couple of years, my mindset, clicked into 
we're in it for the long haul. My mindset the first time round was let's get this done and go back to normal. And that got me through, that mindset got me through. But now I've changed, I've had to settle into a different level of acceptance that it's a chronic illness. And so that changes what it means for Aaron and myself because I haven't been able to return to work and I do have periods where I'm not overly helpful at home either. Give yourself a break, Nina. And for those listeners, because you can't see Nina and I can, she's looking bloody awesome. (laughs) So around the bag, I've seen the way you've approached this and you've said your mindset's changed, but it is nothing short of inspirational. I think, Aaron, you would have with the way Nina has approached it because I had a bag but it was not permanent. You went through a process that you went, I'd rather have it than not. Talk us through that. Yeah, so I guess in the lead-up, I did have a little bit of lead-up time to the surgery and I tried to use it as best I could. I did lots of things um, that were suggested by the dietitians in Bowel Cancer Australia and had an exercise physiologist and a psychologist, and we did a lot of what we called prehab. Um, But part of that was also talking to other people, and a lot of those people I've had connections by Bag Cancer Australia who have potentially had a bag and live with it permanently, or other people who've had a bag and have had the opportunity to have it reversed. And sometimes that reversal goes really well, um, and they return to pretty good function and they're, they're happy with how it turns out. But it doesn't always do that. And for some people, their rectum, so the part, the holding, the holding room of the, the poo before it comes out just doesn't function well. And so you're left with a really, I guess for some people, it, it is a disability because it stops them from being able to fulfill whatever it is in their life that they want to do. Many people are housebound, aren't they? They, they, they don't have a life. That's right. Absolutely. And it can be painful. Um, it can be, and it it is really difficult to manage incontinence in general, but faecal incontinence is an absolute life changer. And so I guess I've had the opportunity to talk to some people who've had that experience and how it impacts on their life. And, that, and I definitely didn't want that. And so I started to think about the option of a colostomy bag as if it functions well and I can learn to manage it it's probably more predictable and manageable than having faecal incontinence. And I thought about being able to go out with my kids, go and watch my son's soccer game, go and duck to the shops, go out for brunch, take the dog for a walk. And I thought, you know, if I'm constantly worried about where the toilet is, that's really going to be such a stressful, be a real barrier to doing the things that I want to do. So once I started thinking about it like that and also You know, there's a lot, I mean, social media has its pros and cons, but there are a lot of people who are using social media to be really open about their experience with different types of ostomies. And that's been really amazing because when you see people living, exercising, working, parenting, just having a life in general with different types of bags, it makes you realise that it is doable. So that's been a really helpful thing for me leading up to the surgery. I often used to say, you know, as a girl, I loved bags, but it's not the bag I wanted. I <laughs> but I love that you've named it Bessie the bag. <laughs> Aaron, I want to chat to you a little bit more about your caring role. As we've touched on the support that you've given, and now I know you've taken quite a bit of time off work for this latest stage in Nina's journey. 
What advice do you have for others who might be going through a similar situation? Uh, my advice would be, I guess, try to get along to as many of the appointments as you can uh, get to, especially. Uh, often you will walk away from those appointments and you can be a little bit bamboozled if it was just one person, but at least we can bounce off each other when we do uh, come out of those um, uh, appointments together. We're, we're so fortunate that we've got a huge support network around us as well with family and friends and colleagues and neighbours. I think initially when Nina was first diagnosed back in 2020, I tried to do it all myself and people would often call or send messages or bump into them and say, what can we do? And I'd be like, no, don't want to do anything. Like, I can do it. Don't worry about it. Where now I'm like, people actually want to help. So if they want to drop off a meal or do a school pickup or a school drop-off or take the kids out for a play date or something like that, then we tend not to say no anymore because it helps us, um, but it also lets our, you know, our loved ones get involved as well and be, and, you know, I guess they're along for the ride with us as well. To, to take that support when it's offered. What do you do to look after yourself? Because that's really important as well. Do you take time out for just you? Probably not as much as what I, I should. We were um, would try to get out for a walk every day just to clear the mind. Uh, speak to friends, speak to family. I, I think that's probably something with you that you're still working on. If yeah. I, <laughs> that's yeah. my two bobs worth. <laughs> it is. It's probably easy to get caught up in what's happening for me. Something I've noticed is that everything that comes, you know, after surgery, there was flowers and chocolates and gift cards, and they were all addressed to me. You know, and. In some respects, I think it's easier being the patient. And I do think that Aaron is the forgotten one in all of this because his stress and his workload and, you know, it's, it's just as high as mine, um, his worries, his fears. And I think, yeah, people do focus on the patient a lot. I had a very good role model in uh, my dad. Um, the last few years especially, um, mum was diagnosed about seven years ago with bile duct cancer, which then you know, over the seven years she had quite significant spread through it. You've been through the ringer as a family. Yeah, yeah, it's been a tough few years. And dad especially, he was still working when mum was diagnosed and didn't really have plans to retire or anything like that at that stage. And he was always, mum was always, a, you know, she called herself a domestic engineer. So she was running the household, cooking, shopping, doing everything. Dad would come home from work, sit down at the table, have his meal, go watch TV or whatever. But then in the last few years, he he was a primary caregiver and he retired early and did everything for it. Like cooked, cleaned, took her to all the appointments, did the shopping, like just amazing, like school pickups and for the grandkids and things like that. Just amazing. And mum would be barking, you know, words of encouragement, I guess, from uh, from the lounge or something, say, do this, do that, declutter this, um, and tell him how to do it. So uh, he was a really good role model, role model for me. Another area that I know that has really helped you, you've, you've mentioned that you have great family and friends and a great support system and your number one fan being Aaron supporting you. But I know you've also connected with bowel cancer patients and had great peer-to-peer support how's that helped you finding your tribe oh massively I I don't think I really I actually can't remember whether I knew about it 
back in 2020 or when I quite discovered it, but I wish it was offered to me sooner. I mean, last night we had our our Zoom meeting, our once a month Zoom meeting, which you and I were both in on. And look, it was it was a very emotional one last night. Yes, it was. And that can be, I guess that can be um, the fear for some people that you're going to enter into this space that's a little bit too much. But my advice to people is, you know, I duck in and I duck out. I, there are times when I feel I need to retreat and I need to just step back from cancer being my whole life. You're not defined by cancer. We are not defined by cancer. And one of the things I love about the group is that we also celebrate all the other things that we do. You know, people share that they've got some goals. You know, they're going on trips. They, you know, doing all the things that bring them joy. And that's what I like about it too because people are really, we're each other's cheerleaders. And we really know when we say, you know, all the best, we're thinking of you, it's a tough ride. We really understand. We may not have the exact same experience, but it's just um I think when we went to Canberra and saw the people around the room, it was like there was just a, you didn't even need to say the words out loud. You just knew immediately that these people understood what you'd been through, the gravity of it. And I guess having the, the other thing is it's just um, good to have some handy tips and tricks. You know, you can post anything in the group and get a reply back, whether it be at midnight or any time through through the day and night. And there's always someone there who's had perhaps a similar experience who can say, look, this worked for me, that worked for me. And it's information that you're not going to get from your healthcare team, no matter how wonderful they are, because it's from people's lived experience and nothing can replace that. So I've I've just found it to be, you know, I don't like to miss a meeting. When when we, well, I schedule them into the diary and to see those faces is just reassuring to me that I'm not alone and uh, it's given me support that I, I don't think anyone else can give no matter how much, how hard they try. It's a type of support. Like I said before, you can't expect your spouse and your support people to give you everything. They can't be all things. And that's just one area that is so unique that I think Bow Cancer Australia, the support group, the peer-to-peer style of support has been really helpful for me. Yes, well, you were talking about the movement, which is a closed Facebook community, which is wonderful. And I know I didn't have any of that when I was going through it 10 years ago. And had I had it, I think it would really have helped. And it's great to hear. Finally, we're going to wrap up and I ask my guests to summarise the podcast for us and give us their top three points that they'd like listeners to take away from today's chat. I'm going to ask you both three each. Who would like to go first, Nina or Aaron? (laughs) I I think I can come up with three. Look, I think um, when it comes to carers, I think I've touched on it a few times throughout this podcast, but just that we can't expect them to be all things to us as much as we'd like them to be, whether it be through illness or any other time. So, you know, the things that your spouse or partner or support person people are good at, you know, let them let them do those things. If they're good at cooking, let them cook for you. Um, if they're good at sitting in appointments, let them sit in appointments with you and take notes and ask questions. 
whatever it is that they feel comfortable that they can step up to, really um, utilise that. But outsource the things that they find too difficult, that are too dark. You know, I think I've spoken about, you know, outsourcing psychology, for example. There are just some conversations that it's not helpful to have together and you can leave that with somebody else, leave that burden with somebody else. So I find that helpful. The other thing is that when people ask to help, so when other people in your village ask what they can do, if you can't think of anything for yourself, try and think of something for your partner or your support person. You know, for Aaron, I'll, I'll often say, take him out for lunch, you know, take him take him for a day somewhere or um, do something for him because they really do need it. And, and I think for them it's important to have time away from you where they can also be honest about things without feeling like they're going to upset the person, the patient. And I think thirdly is don't be scared to reach out to other people in the cancer or bowel cancer community. You don't need to, there's no commitment. You, you, can't, you don't need to get stuck there. You can dip in and dip out when you need it. No one will think badly of you. We're all there at different times. We have our ups and downs. There's times when you feel you have more to offer and times when you need to sit back and that's okay. So I'd recommend, you know, take a look at it, see if it's for you, watch from afar if you want to, that's completely fine. Wonderful tips there, Nina. And yourself, Erin. And they don't have, if you don't have three, you don't have to give me three. <laughs> she did take a few of mine, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think from my my perspective is he, as the carer, um, you don't need to have all the answers. I've, I haven't always been the best listener, but I try to uh, try to listen harder and you know go to those appointments. So, secondly, I guess is asking asking for help or accepting help when it is offered is uh, a big thing that's made it so much easier. I guess this time round, when we've got more people involved, and it's been really helpful. And the third thing I think that we've done is, and I think that we took from I guess my mum is she always had goals. She always had little things planned, whether it was to pack the caravan and get away for a weekend. I guess it's taking the time and the effort to put things in place so that you've got little goals to look forward to, uh, either together or as a family um, as well, and, and make those special memories. Aaron and Nana, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today on the Bottom Line podcast. Aaron, to gain your perspective, as a carer is so very important and I know our listeners will gain much from your insight today. Nina, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you over the past six months. Your positivity and your willingness to throw yourself into raising awareness while tackling your own ongoing treatment is nothing short of amazing. However, what I've been most struck by with you is your kindness, your kind heart, your warmth and your generosity. Thank you for giving today with so much honesty to you both and thank you for allowing me to share your story with the Bottom Line podcast community. It's been a real privilege to chat to you both today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You've brought a bit of a tear to my eye there. That's really lovely. Thank you. We, we appreciate the opportunity to talk about our situation as well if it helps other people. It's great. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.